Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We started looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians last week. That sermon, actually, Ephesians part one, I guess, um, actually included some personal stuff that I didn't want to make available for uh, the world at large, as I mentioned, you know, of the uh, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people who download our sermons each week. Uh, This was, I kind of wanted it kept in-house, so we did record it. It's available to any of you who, if you want to get it in the bookstore, but it's not going to be available online. I know that's, uh, it's not as handy, uh, but there it is. You want to fight me about it, we can fight in the parking lot after church. Uh, but I said all that to say I'm going to do a quick review of Ephesians chapter 1 a little bit. Uh, I'll try to do it quickly because I do want to get into chapter 2 today. And as I mentioned last week, the structure of this letter is pretty interesting and it's pretty straightforward. The first three chapters are all about what God has done, uh, about the fullness of our salvation, right? Uh, I actually see a strong parallel between the first three chapters of Ephesians and Psalm 103. You know, Psalm 103, you know, forget not all his benefits. It tells us that this isn't just about forgiveness. It's about healing. It's about abundant provision. It's about right relationship with God, about standing before him with no guilt. Uh, It's such an encouraging psalm. And Ephesians kind of does that for three chapters, tells us who we are in Christ, just the, the magnitude of the saving work of Jesus Christ that's so far beyond just saving us from hell. Uh, and the last three chapters are like, since this is all true, since this is what God has equipped you with, since this is who you are because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, this is how you should live. And there's three chapters of that. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 1, man, he just hits the ground running. Uh, look again, starting in verse 3, right after his greeting, he says, blessed be, the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. You see, again, it's not just that he saved us from hell. This was, I admit, I've shared my testimony before. I'm not going to share, the, uh, share it again this morning. Uh, but my sisters and I all kind of laugh about how mom scared us all into uh, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. We were young. And the main thing on my mind, because as a kid who was raised in the church, raised with the Bible stories, I could not explain theology to you. I had, didn't have a grasp on doctrine at age nine, but I did know that God was real. I knew the devil was real. I knew heaven and hell were real. And because I knew they were real, I, I think I had, for, for a kid anyway, a really weirdly strong sense of my own mortality. I was enjoying life, but I thought, man, I want to make sure everything's okay after I die. How do I know, how do I know I'm going to heaven? And when my mom, and I'd heard the message of salvation, when I finally understood the gospel, I knew something in, in me. Somehow, someday, I was going to respond to it. Why I, why I wasn't in a big hurry, I don't know. 
Uh, but now I'm uh, nearly, well, I was age 12, I guess, right? Cheryl, 12 or almost 12? 11, right? Almost 12. And uh, I guess maybe I'm thinking, hey, I want to get some, uh, get some good sinning in before I get saved. You know, I don't think I was thinking like that. I just was like, I don't know, what's, what's the hurry? And then when Ma, it was mom who made me understand the connection between receiving the gospel and heaven. And once I found out that's what I needed to be saved from hell, I, there was no way I was going to wait until Sunday to do it. I curled up in a chair and cried out for Jesus to come into my life and save me at that moment, and I believe he did. Even though I didn't understand much beyond the fact that I don't have to go to hell, I believe God met me where I was, and we've built on that since then. Okay, But the main thing for me was hell. And it was such a glorious thing. I didn't have a vision. It wasn't like this huge, you know, it's, people describe their salvation experiences or their experiences being filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they, it's manifested in a thousand different ways. All I can tell you is I went to bed with a sense of peace, deep spiritual peace for the first time in my life because that was a worry I simply didn't have anymore. But he didn't just save us from hell. You understand the cross, which certainly accomplished that, means that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. It means that we are sons and daughters of God. That we are, because we are in him, in him, holy and blameless. It goes on to say that because of that, we have wisdom, we have understanding, we have unity, we have an inheritance that equips us, the body of Christ, to glorify him. More on that later. And then beginning in verse 17, we come to the first of two great prayers that Paul records in this letter. In beginning in verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a lot packed up there, but I want you to know that it is the groundwork for everything he's going to tell us to do in chapters uh, 4 through 6, and the groundwork that we need to get a handle on, uh, we need to get a handle on all this particular groundwork for all of our Christian duties, all of the works that we're called to do. We've talked about this before, but it's super important and absolutely central to what Paul is saying here. One way of looking at the cross and the resurrection is, well, God already gave his son. Jesus gave his life for my sins. He paid a dear price to save me from hell. Paid with his life. So how can I, a poor old sinner saved by God's mercy and grace, which he didn't have to offer me in the first place, how can I presume to ask him for more than that? But that's not the right way to look at it. 
The right way to look at it is this. Included in the price of salvation was your complete and utter redemption. He didn't just save you from hell. He bought you back to himself into right relationship with the God of the universe, right standing with him. He made you a member of his family, and he did this by placing you and me in Christ. And in Christ, there is no sin, there is no condemnation, there is no guilt, there is no defeat, no sickness, and no lack. That's what he did when he saved you. He didn't say, all right, I'll save you. I'll save you. I did it. I did this much. Now, let's see how good you are and see if you can earn a little bit of prosperity, earn a little bit of healing, earn a little bit of uh, uh, guilt-free living. No, 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 no. All of that was done at the cross. Look at the end of this again. In verse, beginning of verse 22. He put all things under, this is God putting everything under Jesus' feet. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's us, right? We're the church. Can we all agree on that? The church is his body and all things are under his feet. Are the feet part of the body? Who's a foot in here? We're all, we are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. Everything, all these powers and minions, authorities, all these evil things, everything that tries to rob us of every spiritual blessing, of every blessing period, are under the feet of Jesus. But that means they are under our feet because we are the body. It's not like, well, I put them under Jesus' feet. And one day, one day when we're with him, They'll be under our feet. No, they're already under our feet because we are in him. Now, let's let's get into chapter 2 here. This is exciting. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, then come back and say say a few things. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. I want you, uh, number one, I mentioned last week, I continue to encourage you to do this. As you read through this book, as we read through it together, get a pencil or highlighter or something and highlight, underline, do something every time it says in him or in Christ. Because that's the root of all this truth. And we just read it several times in there. There's another thing I remember doing in the, my, my Rhema Bible, the, my old open Bible, New American Standard Version, or New American Standard Bible that I took to Rhema that is just shredded. I can't bring it into the pulpit anymore. It'll just dissolve, I think. But there was a, if you take a, uh, 
I remember uh, in verse 1 there where it says, you were dead. It says, you he made alive who were dead. But I drew a line from you to were dead in verse 1. Highlighted that. And then drew a line down to verse 4 where it says, but God. Highlight that. And then down to verse 5 where it said, made us alive. There's five verses there, but you can draw a line through that sentence that says, you were dead, but God made us alive. And that's the message here. Once again, the problem was not that you were bad. The problem was not that you were evil and God needed to make you good. The problem was that you were dead, dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses, and God made you live. He has raised you from death into new life because we were crucified in Christ. And we have been raised in Christ. So I wasn't in Christ when he was crucified. That's all retroactive. Once you are in Christ, that means you were crucified with him and you were raised with him. But again, not just salvation from hell. Look at verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that's obviously not a geographical statement. We are not in heaven right now. But we are sitting in a seat of authority that is occupied by Jesus because Jesus is seated in heavenly places over in a position of authority, power over all of these evil powers, all dominions, uh, all authority, all power, all spirits. Jesus, we, everybody cross-denominational barriers would recognize that Jesus is in authority over all that. What this verse is clearly saying is, since we are in him, we are also in a position of authority over all these things. Now, we have, many of us at different times have come under attack. We have succumbed to temptation. We have succumbed to uh, a number of different things. But if we're honest, we can look back and say, it's because I was not walking in the authority that was mine. I wasn't exercising the authority that was mine. Can we admit that? Can we admit where, where, admit where we have missed it from time to time, right? But God made us alive. Our spiritual position is one of authority, seated with Christ in heavenly places. In verse 7, where it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then in verse, uh, verses uh, 8 through 10, this is a really famous passage, and it's used mostly to demonstrate the scriptural truth that we don't save ourselves. We don't earn our salvation with good works. But there's more to that. Let's read that again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Stop there for a second. It is grace that saves us, God's grace. And we appropriate that grace with faith. Grace, and uh, we had a class, many of you know this, at Rama called Understanding Grace, an eight-week course on what grace is, taught by Tony Cook who has got uh, hundreds of messages on what grace is, and so I can't do a full teaching on that today. I really, really kind of like the old uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, you know, for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It might be a, uh, kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, but I think if you're going to sum it up with a cute little thing like that, that's a pretty good one. 
people have uh, in the past differentiated between grace and mercy. This way, mercy is us not getting what we do deserve, and grace is us getting what we don't deserve, the good things, right? Uh, And it's God's goodness, his grace, that saves us. He did that. He, but he makes that grace available. When, he said, when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but would have everlasting life, that means that the death of Jesus Christ made salvation, made saving grace available to everybody. But it doesn't mean that everybody is saved. Only those who believe, only the, those who who appropriate that salvation, that saving grace, with their faith, are saved. Then Paul says, and that not of yourselves, meaning what? Meaning you can't even take credit for the faith because the faith itself is a gift from God. God makes his grace available through the cross and then gives you the very faith you need to appropriate that saving grace. It's still up to us whether we do. But nobody can say, I can't, I can't, God hasn't made it available to me. We can choose not to believe, all right? But we can't throw up our our hands and say, God predestined me for hell. That's not the way it works. so, So he gives us the grace, he makes the grace available to us, he gives us the faith to appropriate it, and we express that faith, how? How do we use the faith to appropriate the grace? With our confession. Romans 10, 9 and 10. I always quote Romans 10, 9. We can look at the whole, both those verses right now if you want. Romans 10, beginning in verse 9, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's our faith's confession that activates God's grace in our lives. And uh, I might also add that a, a legitimate confession of our salvation is baptism, water baptism, following the Lord in baptism, obeying the Lord in baptism. If you, by the way, have made a confession of faith un, uh, unto salvation but have not since been water baptized, let me know and we will schedule that as soon as possible. Now, verse 10, super important. For we are his workmen, we're back in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved just for you. You are not saved just to go to heaven when you die. God actually has a lifetime of good works for you to do, a path that he has designed for you to walk that will show the world how great our God is, how great our salvation is, and will bring glorify, uh, that will actually bring glory to God when other people respond to his goodness because of what they see in our lives. Let me try this illustration out. And I've got to be careful with it because I'm using money as an illustration here, and I don't want encur- to share anything with you that's going to encourage a love of money. Uh, but do you ever drift off into thinking about what you could do and what you would do for the kingdom of God if suddenly you had, say, $100 million. You know, maybe every time you drive by one of those giant billboards, the, the Powerball is up to whatever it is, $300, $400 million. And you think, well, I'm not going to be stupid and buy a ticket, but if I ever won that much money, here's what I'd do. Anybody ever play that game in your mind? Yeah, three of you have. Four, counting me. 
Because if your heart's right, you, it goes something like this. Well, I tithe first, and that's great for Living Word Family Church. You tithe off $100 million, we'd have two paved parking lots, one in the east, one on the west, right? We'd have a new roof on this place, coffee bar. There's a number of things we could do. More than that, though, this is a church that tithes, goes beyond the tithe to missionaries and, and ministries. Think about what we could do for those ministries we, we could support with the tithe off of $100 million. Be good for this church, wouldn't it? Be good for a lot of ministries, wouldn't it? And then you'd say, well, then I could start a foundation. I could put the bulk of this money into a foundation that would generate money, would generate millions of dollars a year without exhausting the principal, without touching the principal, and this would be a revenue stream for years, decades to come to support churches, ministries, missions. Wouldn't it be an awesome thing to do? And if your heart's right, that's the way your mind goes. If you're thinking, if I had this much money, I would build the biggest house and buy the biggest boat, and I'd buy another biggest house and another biggest boat. That way I wouldn't have to transport the boat from one coast to the other. I'd just have two homes, and I could just live like a king wherever I was. That's not thinking right. And we know that, right? Nothing, nothing against nothing against having those things. I've got to be careful here. But if your heart is for the gospel, the first place it ought to go is, what could I do for the kingdom of God? And if you're smart, you'd salt away enough that you wouldn't have to worry about your financial future. You could say, I'm going to give most of this away, but I'm going to put some in an account, make sure that things are taken care of uh, for my retirement, for my children, for my grandchildren. So anyway, with that illustration, we can look at our salvation. Now, be careful. Don't amen this yet because I'm going to throw you a curveball. We could look at our salvation like this. We want to reach a point in our Christian lives where we are an asset to the kingdom of God, where we have enough of everything we need, spiritual gifts, maturity, in addition to our material resources, of course, authority, holiness, purity, humility, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, where we have enough of those things to be a blessing and an asset. And we can sort of see God saying, if you'll walk along this path straight enough and long enough, you will acquire those things. And that's the role of works in the Christian life. Do good, do good for long enough, and I will bless you with every spiritual blessing. And eventually, stay faithful, you'll be an asset to the church. So it would sort of be analogous to the uh, uh, study hard, go to college, work diligently through your earning years, and you will accumulate enough to eventually not only be financially secure, but you'll be in a position to help others. But it's not like that. What Paul is writing here is that simply by virtue of being saved, you have already, right now, inherited everything. It's yours. The process of our Christian maturity and walk, oftentimes, it's, it's never a process of acquiring and earning spiritual gifts. It's discovering them. It's like turning the page and say, oh, this is mine too? You can't do anything with it until you know you have it. But once you know you have it, it's not like, oh, wow, in 10 years I can have this. Every spiritual blessing belongs to you. Why? Because you've been faithful for 10 years in the church? No, because you are in Christ. You have an inheritance that is yours starting the day you come to Christ. And the goal actually is to spend it. Spend that inheritance on the glory of God. And the way to do that best is to walk in that authority, walk in the manifestation of those blessings in such a way that it points people to Christ. 
And what we find when we do that is that there is an eternal reward in heaven that we can never exhaust. If we're going to bring this illustration full circle, I guess I would refer to that. Uh, anybody ever see the old movie? I'm the old one, not the 1985 version. I never saw it, but there was a movie called Brewster's Millions where a guy, as of 1945, I can't remember who starred in it, but a guy comes home from uh, the war and discovers he has inherited a million do- $8 million be like $114 million today. But in order to get that inheritance, he has to spend a million dollars in 30 days. So you give him a a million dollars, and you say at the end of a month, you can't have anything to show for it. You just have to spend it. So it would be like taking uh, whatever it was, uh, $14 million, I think. would uh, I can't remember how how the math worked out, but it's obviously a lot more money today. And I think the updated version, it was like you have 30 days to spend $30 million, then you win $300 million, whatever. But this guy had to get rid of a million dollars. He had to just spend it, go through it. And then when he did, he gets the full inheritance. But if he has anything left to show from what he started out with, he doesn't get anything. So, and that's not a perfect illustration either, but the idea that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing there's, there's, you can kind of tie that into the parable of the talents. We're not to take these things and bury them. We're not supposed to just take them out and show people. We're supposed to be spending these things, spending ourselves, spending our energy, our gifts, our times, our talent, not just our resources, but certainly including our resources, so that when we slide into heaven, we are spent, that we have taken everything God has given us and we have poured it out in this life of good works. And what do we see when we get there? Here's the fullness of your inheritance. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Spend it all. Don't hold back. Remember, while God does specifically promise to abundantly supply our needs, in this passage we are not here talking primarily about money. Money was the illustration. You have have inherited enough holiness to stand confidently in the presence of God. He doesn't save you and then say, eventually, you'll be holy enough to stand before me boldly. That's part of our inheritance starting now. You have already inherited enough faith to pray with great effect. You have inherited enough authority to cast out demons. You have inherited enough power to heal the sick. You have inherited enough wisdom to live circumspectly. You have inherited enough forgiveness to forgive completely. You have inherited enough love to love unconditionally. You have inherited enough supply to give sacrificially. And you have inherited the Spirit of God himself. And you are blessed to be a blessing. Already. Day one, those, all of that inheritance is yours. All this and heaven too. Your salvation is assured. Stand up. If you are a believer, if you have confessed Christ, your salvation is assured. You don't have to spend one minute of your life securing that. That was done. 
You can spend your life, spend yourself, spend your gifts, glorifying God by bringing others into this new life. This is what Paul is talking about. He has blessed us with all this spiritual blessing that he can show his goodness through us. He does that with our lives. We live these lives not to earn one thing he's given us. All of that's paid for. All of it's ours, signed, sealed, delivered. We live our lives so we can invite others into this same extravagant grace. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.